Let's open our precious Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We just had read to us by some of our brothers the first psalm, David writing about Scripture, the 19th psalm, David writing about Scripture, and the 119th psalm, David writing about Scripture. Those are the three chapters where David wrote about Scripture more than the rest of the 147 other psalms. I had the privilege on Wednesday evening of having the young people with me, and the subject I took up for them was David's deeds. The events in David's lives, David's life, that gives away and tells us, shows us the character traits that made him the man after God's own heart. David loved to go to church. I made it very simple. David loved to go to church. And he says that in Psalm 121, Psalm 122, Psalm 84. But he also says it in Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David also loved the Bible. Because of Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Don't let Psalm 119 intimidate you. It's 176 verses long, but each verse is a standalone statement about the Word of God. You don't have to read the whole thing. You will not, I don't think you can get anything out of reading it except an overall feeling that the Bible is pretty special if you read all 176 at once. But you should dive into the individual verses and pull it out, go over it slowly, get down on your knees and pray it, Some of them are declarations about God's Word. Some of them are prayers to God and how David wants the Lord to make God's Word applied in his life. But if you want to be like David, then you will desire the Word of God more than much fine gold. Fine gold being 24 karat, no impurities in it. Not like the rings I'm wearing. Probably not like the rings you're wearing. We want fine gold, but the Bible is better than much fine gold, and it's better than honey in the honeycomb. To be like David, you love God's Word, because the prosperity and success that David met with in his life is found in Psalm 1 by meditating on the Word of God day and night. If you fill your mind with these things, your speech will be filled with these things, and the Lord will bless your life. Whatsoever you do shall prosper. We believe that word of prophecy as much as any other word of prophecy. It's addressed to us in the prosperity of our lives. Second Peter chapter 1. Let's be like David by believing the more sure word of prophecy. I hope you enjoyed Proverbs 22 that was given to us where Solomon explained that for us to bow down our ears, that's to humble ourselves and be willing to be taught. Like the noble Bereans, it says of them, they received the word with all readiness of mind. We want to receive that truth, bowing our ears down, Lord, teach me, so that then we might have the certain words of truth to give to those that ask us. We don't want to give them opinions. We don't want to tell them, I think so. We want to give them the certain words of truth, and we want them fitted in our lips And it comes by bowing down our ear to the Word of God. And so we're hearing these last three verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. 
This chapter has had wonderful things for us. That first sentence is magnificent in the blessings that it describes to us and encourages us to realize God's best for our lives in that first sentence. And then the proof of our election in verses 5 through 11. Part of the purpose of the ministry is to repeat things so that we don't forget them, verses 12 through 15. And then in 16 through 18, Peter's recap of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on a mountain, apart from the rest of the disciples, and then the more sure word that we have. So let me read these three verses to you. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen and amen. In these three verses is a general overall lesson about the Bible in its entirety. However, by letting the context direct us, we can see that an emphasis is on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although this applies as much to New Testament epistles as it does to Old Testament epistles. The Holy Ghost moved holy men to write down the Holy Ghost's words that we compare when we compare spiritual things with spiritual. These are not the words of men. They're not the words of Peter, Paul, or Moses. They're the words of the Holy Ghost in both Testaments. Because Peter has written we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Here is one of the reasons it's more sure, and it's what the Lord wants to tell us, is the first reason that makes it so sure. Right. Knowing this first. Before we make this verse, the first rule of Bible study, which we have done, we want to understand it in its context. Peter has said that Scripture is more sure than the transfiguration and this is the first reason. You have more evidence of Jesus Christ coming by what the Scriptures declare about His coming than you do by the transfiguration. The word of prophecy already mentioned is the prophecy of His coming if we're very precise with the language. We have more assurances Jesus is coming than just what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration. The value of exceeding great and precious promises depends on the certainty of those great and precious promises. Those great and precious promises are mentioned in verse 4, but the certainty of them, them being more sure, is what gives us confidence in them. Individual men that were the writers of the Bible, and there were about 40, we have 66 books but about 40 men chosen by God to write down God's words. But they're God's words, not the men's words, and we want to know that first, so that we don't think that any one man wrote anything different than what the other men were writing, and we should not come up with some independent, individual, separate, or peculiar, or particular interpretation, but there should be the whole interpretation of the whole combined Word of God. The first rule to follow is that the Bible has one author. 
And it cannot have any contradictions in it. Knowing this first. And we always want to remember that. The prophecies of the second coming and revelation from God in general through the Bible must have criteria for us to arrive at the truth because there are many people that have the Bible, but they don't arrive at the same form of doctrine. And there's a reason because there's something that we need to know first. And that is that there is no private interpretation of the Bible, which we'll get to in just a moment. Though there were 40 writers, there's only one author. And we, we constantly have to go back to that. The Bible must all fit together. We can't choose our favorite passages and neglect our less favorite passages. We go to the Bible and make it all fit together. We don't take our favorite passages and pervert other passages just because they're difficult. We make them fit together. And that is the great restraint on us misinterpreting Scripture by making it all fit. Because you can find sound bites in the Bible to back up anything you want to believe. But we want to make it all fit together and all the sound bites disappear. And what we're left with is one unified, solid, whole doctrine of apostolic gospel. And that's what we want to find. And so we have this rule for us. And we have this reminder that the written Word of God is more sure if we know this first. And we do know it first. That there's no private interpretation of the Bible. You know, there is context, and then there is context. And what we're talking about right now is the context of 31,101 verses. You say, I need to know the whole Bible to interpret any verse of the Bible? Check. That's good. Yes, you need to know the whole Bible, because how do you know that some of the verses that you don't know in the Bible aren't going to impact the verses you think you know? They may modify those verses. There are so many heresies derived from the Bible because God's written it in such a way that if you want to pick your four or five favorite verses here or there, you can justify just about anything. That's why there are so many that believe that salvation includes baptism because there are verses that certainly sound that way. Like Acts 22, and I've been over this so many times with you, it's very comforting to know why we study the Bible the way we do. In Acts 22, Ananias said to Saul of Tarsus, Arise, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Well, it couldn't be any simpler than that. We need to be baptized to wash away our sins. But remember, we are told throughout the Scriptures that regeneration is not by the works of men, Titus 3.5. We're told that baptism is the answer of a good conscience. So that person has already had their sins washed away and so forth and so on, because we make it all fit together. So what does it mean when it says, wash away your sins? It's the figurative washing away of your sins. You say to me, that's pretty bold for you to take the word figurative and look at a verse where denominations have stood the ground in the test of time, and they have held that you can wash away your sins in the waters of baptism, how can you call it a figure? Because 1 Peter 3.21 says, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. The only salvation in baptism is a figurative salvation because we've taken 1 Peter 3.21 and lined it up with Acts 22.16 and the rest of the Bible about baptism and we arrive at the apostolic gospel. Because of this rule, knowing this first, 
There are no contradictions in the Bible. There is no private interpretation. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the foretelling of Jesus Christ's second coming, or if we're talking about the Bible in general, and all of the truth that it reveals to us. We have to know this first. It applies to both. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, there is no verse, there is no chapter, there is no book of the Bible that can be made of a private interpretation. Now let me explain that to you. And we do know this. It's been taught, but we have new members, we have younger members, and we want to be established in this point because Peter said, knowing this first, and on this ground, we believe that we have a more sure word. Because it has one author. Now it says in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Some like to make that no private revelation, no private inspiration. But it's not talking about the giving end of God's Word, of God giving His Word. It's about us receiving it because interpretation is what hearers do with it. It's not inspiration and revelation, it's interpretation. It, I know, when I make a point like that, you must think to yourself, how could anybody think that? You'd be shocked at what people think. Let's just go back to baptism. Does the vast majority of those that call themselves Christians believe that you wash away your sins in the waters of baptism? Yes, they do. The large, the very large majority of those that call themselves Christians and they're wrong. The word private knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, no verse, no foretelling, no revelation of God is of private interpretation. The word private means separate. Just think about the word private. Separate, alone, individual, personal, peculiar, particular, or special. It's not private. It's not its own. It's not unique. It is not separate from the whole and the second, the next verse, the last verse of the chapter tells us how we should understand the word private because it explains it with that coordinating conjunction for, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men, that's those plural 40 writers, those holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There's one author to the Bible, so there cannot be a private interpretation. You cannot find a passage or a verse and pull it out because the Holy Spirit wrote, authored the whole thing that 40 different holy men wrote down. And so on that basis, it's more sure. The Scriptures are established on the fact that they have one author, and when you take all 31,101 verses... And on the subjects that you, the subject that you are looking at, you make all the verses fit together, you have a solid foundation for your feet and your faith. Because you've taken a number of writers with one author, writing from different perspectives for different purposes at different times, and you're pulling it all together, and that is how you find out and discover the interpretation of what the Holy Ghost wanted us to have. Thank you, Lord. No portion of revelation can be separated from the rest to stand alone or privately for an individual, independent, or peculiar, or particular, or special, or different interpretation. Many writers, many genres of literature are used, 
but we take all the verses and put them together. When we are looking up something in the Bible to study, we take every verse, Old Testament, New Testament, and we put it together and we make it fit. We do not say, I like these verses. I like the sovereignty of God, so Daniel 4, 34 and 35 are going to be by my mantra, and I'm going to ignore the Arminian verses. No, we look at those Arminian verses, and we're thankful for them, but we see them fitting with the sovereignty of God. You know, so many want to go into John 3.16 and think that that is the gospel in a nutshell, only for those that are nuts. Because that's got to be modified by the rest of what John himself wrote. Anybody want to do a study on how John used the word world in just the gospel of John? Do you want a mental twister? then just look at the word world in the Gospel of John alone. And you'll find out that trying to draw a conclusion from John 3.16 and to force the rest of the Bible into that mold, and it's only one verse out of 31,101, you have erred greatly. You can't even get out of chapter 3 without finding out that John used the word world in several different senses. And the sense he didn't use was every single human being since Adam and Eve. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing us that John and Peter and the others would speak of us Gentiles as being part of a world. The world of the Gentiles. The world of God's elect. And for God so loved the world of His elect among the Gentiles that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is not the condition to get life. It's the evidence of it. God sent His Son to die on the cross to guarantee the salvation of believers. And those believers are going to include the Gentiles as Jesus laid on poor Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. Heavenly Father, show us Your Word and help us to rightly divide it at every point lest we be guilty like so many others of trying to force the Bible to say what we want it to say. This rule, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, is the single greatest restraint to misinterpreting the Bible because we make everything fit. And the rest of the Bible is like reminders. Get back in the center of the road. Get back in the road. If you just read one portion of Scripture, you could easily veer into a ditch. But as you're heading for that ditch, if you're reading the whole Bible, you get slapped back onto the road. And so, what do we tend to do when that happens? We tend to oversteer and head for the other ditch, and we get slapped back if we'll read everything in the Bible on a given subject that we're studying. You know, if you just went to Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 we would be baptized to wash away our sins. But because we read 1 Peter 3.21, it slaps us back in and tells us it's figurative washing away sins. Thank you, Lord. You know, then we may steer over here. Well, baptism doesn't mean anything then. If it doesn't wash away our sins, why even do it? And then it slaps us back in and says, it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. And so we're getting slapped back onto the road of righteousness and the highway of truth. By this rule, 
of knowing this first, that there isn't an individual or separate or unique interpretation that we can pull out of anywhere in the Bible because the men that wrote it had very little to do with it in comparison to the God who authored the words. If this rule is not followed, it is possible to teach most anything from the Bible. Sodomites go into 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 26. And in David's eulogy for Saul and Jonathan, David said that the love of Jonathan exceeded the love of women. Oh, Sodomites say when they find that verse, they run off into a ditch and say, See, David and Jonathan were gay lovers. I'd like to see them tell David and Jonathan that sometime. That Jonathan and David were gay lovers. And they get that because if that's the only verse you're going to read, and you can't look at the rest of the Bible and see comparative degrees of love and the friendship of loving Him as His own soul and the covenant that they made between themselves and find out that sodomy is an abomination and perversion to God and all those other things just get you right back into the road of truth. But if you just dive onto that one verse, you know that that is a private interpretation. That is someone coming up with something totally different, separate, unique, alone, apart, different, from the rest of the testimony of Scripture. British Israelites. British Israelites, they believe that in the Garden of Eden, the devil and Eve had sex. That when she ate of the fruit, that was, well, you can just go ahead and imagine what it means. And so that there are a group of people on the planet that are the children of the devil. Literally. And they're the descendants of Cain. They number over a million in our country. They're British Israelites. When they find John 8.44 where Jesus addressed the Jews, ye are of your father the devil. There they go. Sweet. See? Even Jesus admitted it. The Jews are the offspring of the devil and Eve. Because it says ye are the children of the devil. But we, by comparing Scripture, find out that children are those that act like their father. They were the children of the devil in that they were obeying the devil. They were following the devil. He was instrumental in their corruption and depravity, but they weren't biologically the children of the devil. The devil doesn't biologically procreate. But there they go. And how are you saved? Listen, you've got to read some of their literature. They get really worked up about it. Because they believe that the Jews are the children of Satan, literally and biologically. That Seth is the product of Adam and Eve. Cain is the product of Satan and Eve. So how do we get, how do we we just read the rest of the Bible and find out how Jesus is using those words there? And we go back and we believe Genesis, we go read Genesis again, and it talks about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't talk about Satan and Eve being in bed. And so we, the whole Word of God brings us back to sanity away from those heresies. But if you don't have the rule, you find a verse and you write a book. The world is excellent at it. Find a verse, write a book. Find a verse, preach a sermon. Every verse that we preach had better be understood in the context of the other 31,100 verses. The temperance movement. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. 
Look not upon the wine when it ariseth in the cup. See? You shouldn't ever have a drop. But they don't read the rest of the Bible to find out that Jesus drank wine all the time so that he was called a wine-bibber by his enemies because he was always drinking compared to John who never drank. John was the one that didn't drink. Jesus drank, and the Bible is filled with drink from beginning to end. Melchizedek and Abraham sat down and drank wine that rises in the cup, and it's a mocker when it's when you drink too much of it. Because wine only mocks when you drink too much of it because it makes you drunk and you do stupid things so that you end up being shamed the next day because you got drunk the night before to do stupid things. Wine is a mocker. Why? If you put two bottles in a closet and turn the lights out, they're not going to mock each other. If you put two bottles together and wrap a cloth around them and tape it up and put a recorder near them, you're not going to get any mocking to each other. Wine isn't a mocker that way. Wine's a mocker by drinking too much of it. It then mocks you because you do things that you would not do when you were not intoxicated. And so we take the rest of the Bible and it slaps us back into position. I love the Bible. And I love the fact that Peter would write by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knowing this first. Isn't that a big help? So when we put together our rules of Bible hermeneutics, which one do you think goes first? This one. Why? Because it says knowing this first. Because this is the first rule that makes the Word of God more sure because you are gathering a great database written by 40 men, but only one author, and you're putting it together and making it all fit That is solid, substantial foundation for truth. If you just go into Genesis chapter 15, where God told Abraham, Abraham, come outside here. Look east, west, north, south. I'm going to give it all to you and your seed. You land on that, you write a book. We need to send F-16s to Israel to help them get the land that God promised to Abraham. But if we read past Genesis 15 and get ourselves into Joshua and get ourselves into Nehemiah, we find out that God already fulfilled His promises about that land. And see, we cannot let that come out of everything the Bible says about it. 1 Corinthians 4.15 says, "Though Though ye may have 10,000 instructors in Christ, I have begotten you through the gospel. Uh-oh. That sounds like Paul was the agent or the means of the Corinthians being born again. It's 1 Corinthians 4.15. Uh-oh. But the Bible says, it is not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Bible says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Then you go over to Galatians and find out that Paul begat the gospel again in the Galatians the second time. Can you be born again twice? No. And by reading the rest of the Bible about being born again, you're slapped back to understand that Paul is saying, I got you started as a believer, 
And you've had ten, you may have had 10,000 other instructors that have come subsequent to me, but I was the first one that taught you the truth. I got you started in the gospel. He didn't regenerate them. And so there we stand on our ancient landmark that we do not believe in gospel regeneration. We believe in spontaneous, instantaneous, sovereign, monergistic regeneration by the work of the Holy Ghost alone, apart from any human means. Amen. Can you fall from grace? The person comes, the person comes to the preacher. Preacher, can you fall from grace? The Church of Christ preacher answers back, of course, son. Of course you can fall from grace. I fall from grace ten times a day. Because in Galatians 5.4 it says you can fall from grace. But you know we go read that passage and it says right in the verse, around the soundbite it says, Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye have fallen from grace. Can anyone actually be justified by the law in order to be able to stand before God in God's righteousness by keeping the law? No. No. So then what does the verse mean? It means, for those of you that think that justification comes by keeping Moses' law, you have fallen from the proper understanding of grace. Do you know that what we're doing right now is just chopping off whole denominations of so-called Bible believers with these points I'm bringing up? Because we follow this rule. Thank you, Lord, for the rule. Abuse of this rule occurs when your presuppositions overrule modifying verses. Now what if you are so strongly convinced about something and here comes this verse at you and you just twist it because you don't want it to change, to upset your apple cart. You have an apple cart going down your road and here comes this verse from God to get you on His road and so you twist it. Let me give you an example and you've heard this before but I want everyone to know it. Martin Luther invented Sola fide, by faith only, because of Romans 1.17. He thought that Romans 1.17 was the gospel in a nutshell to him, and he also was nuts. The just shall not live, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That was his mantra, Martin Luther. So what did he do when the book of James came along? Where James says, ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Do you know what that is saying? It is not sola fide. It is works that prove faith. And that verse is also saying, Martin Luther is wrong. So he said that epistle is a straw man. That epistle does not have apostolic authority. That doesn't belong in the Bible. It is not to be compared to the epistle to the Romans. Well, that's very nice for you to say that. But listen, that's how we stay in the straight and narrow. When we get over there in James chapter 2 and it says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Oh, that helps us understand Romans chapters 3 and 4. It sends us back to Genesis chapter 15. It shows us Psalm 106 where Phinehas had righteousness accounted to him for an act on his part. And so we put it all together. Lord, Lord, please do help us. You know, for for example, some believe that when you're baptized, you automatically become a church member. And so they'll go into Acts chapter 8 and say, well, the eunuch, as he drove away from that oasis in the middle of the desert, he was automatically a church member at Jerusalem. How so? 
what were his what were his functions as a member and what was the rest of the church doing toward him and how did they know they had a member because when Philip came up out of the water he didn't appear at Jerusalem he appeared at Azotus they take acts 241 which they think which it does not teach that baptism causes church membership and then just jam the Ethiopian eunuch a castrated black man into the church of Jerusalem. Watch. This is how, this is how we used to do it. First Timothy 5.10. This is how we used to break the rule. A long time ago, we used to practice foot washing in this church as a public ordinance because we were told that in John 13, when Jesus stood up from washing the feet of the disciples, He said, you have seen my example and you ought to do the same thing. So, well, there's a verse that says foot washing is a good thing and it ought to be done. There's only one other reference to foot washing in the New Testament. It's 1 Timothy 5.10 because we were so solidly convinced that John 13 was the end-all passage about foot washing, we would just read it as a reference text and we would blow through it like this. Verse 10, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. See, washing feet is a good work. The verse starts with a good work. The verse ends with a good work. See, washing feet is a good work. And now I have two references for it. I have John 13 and I have 1 Timothy 5.10. Let's pull out the basins and go at it. Oh Lord, thank You so much. Then you read the context around 1 Timothy 5.10 just a little bit and you find out that that list of good works in verse 10 are not things that ordinary church members did, but exceptional widows that deserve to be taken into the number that the church would support full time. So that everything in that 10th verse was not done by all church members, but was only done by exceptional members, which means that what is in verse 10 were not public ordinances of the gospel. There's nothing about faith in that verse. There's nothing about baptism in that verse. There's nothing about the Lord's Supper in that verse. It's exceptional character. And one of those things was the washing of saints' feet. So that 1 Timothy 5.10 ends up proving that John 13 was never a church ordinance. It was just an example Jesus gave to His apostles to quit fighting and trying to figure out who was going to be in charge when He left. He said, serve each other, just like I have served you. Washing clean feet isn't an act of anything. Those people in the Bible, when they washed feet, they were dirty feet. Jesus washed dirty feet. Not pretend feet. Play feet. Game feet. And so we learned by 1 Timothy 5.10 slapping us back into line because of this rule of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Let's get back there very quickly. 2 Peter 1.20 Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. This rule of interpretation depends on your knowledge and use of all Scripture. A man of God... Study to show thyself approved unto God, 
a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. A minister had better have the time, he better have the ability, he better have the drive, he better have the diligence to study and be a workman in order to be approved of God and not to be ashamed in his doctrine. Because if you don't have the time and you just flip through these pages, you can come up with anything. You want to tell me about Abraham having two wives at once, Jacob having four at once, David having 40 at once, and Solomon having a thousand, and all four of them are in heaven? You want to tell me about it? But if we get over into the minor prophets that are a little harder reading than Genesis and First and Second Samuel, I've already mentioned this to you today, but I, I kind of like the example. If you get me over there in Malachi chapter 2 in one of the minor prophets, it says that God had the residue of the Spirit and He could have given Adam more than one, but He only gave him one. And so what do we do with that? Abraham was wrong. Jacob was wrong. David was wrong. And Solomon was wrong. You say, then why did God let them get away with it? Why didn't lightning fall from heaven and strike all four of them? Do you want to know why? The Bible tells us, if we read the rest of the Bible, because of the hardness of their hearts, God showed mercy. Because of the hardness of their hearts in matters of marriage and sex, God showed mercy. And that's by reading all the Bible, we have a perfect understanding that God made us to be monogamous. That is to marry one woman, and that's all. And we don't have multiple wives at the same time. It wouldn't matter if it becomes legal in this country or not. We're not going to do it. You say, well, what if that Saudi Arabian prince came in that you've told us about with four wives? Would we let him join the church if it was legal in our country? Yes, we would. Would we let him be a deacon? No. Would we let him be a bishop? No, because he has departed from God's ideal for our marriages. And so he'd have to sit in the back with his four wives and 14 children. And we, you know, listen, could we do otherwise? No. Because what you're saying is, if Abraham, Jacob, David, or Solomon tried to join our church, we'd throw them out because they had too many wives. Well, now, what if the law said you could only have three and a man came in with four? He's got some legal work to do. Oh, I'm getting a little bit off track. <laughs> I, it's a, that, those are the examples. You know, you can come up with Abraham and Jacob and David and Solomon, and yet you've got the Word of God that just brings you right back on track. Lord, I know what your will is for marriage. One man, one woman. This, pro, this rule, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, the rule that no individual verse can be pulled out to make it a standalone thing over here. It's got to fit with all the rest. There are no contradictions in the Bible are based on this fact. Verse 21, 4. 4 is a coordinating conjunction explaining the rule of verse 20. 4, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Moses and Samuel and the others that wrote Scripture did not write Scripture based on their own will. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There's one author. And that's what we get from that 21st verse. And that's why we have the rule of the 20th verse. And the rule of the 20th verse gives us solid confidence in the 19th verse that we have a more sure word of prophecy. That's how these three verses fit together. God authored the Bible. All 31,101 verses are from God. All the words haven't memorized that number yet. It's a bigger number than 31,000. It's probably beyond my mental retention. But that number of words in the Bible, God gave those words. 
And it's wonderful how He gave them and that He gave them. And we're very thankful for those men in old time that God gave them His words. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23 since it was read today. We're almost done. Jeremiah chapter 23. The words of Scripture. Brother Mark read to us from Proverbs chapter 22 that we want the certain words of truth. That is what we want fitted in our lips. That's what we want to believe. When we hold to a doctrine, we want certain words of truth. When someone asks us a question, we want to respond with certain words of truth. Jeremiah chapter 23 in verse 16 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. And that is a huge difference. Look at verse 28 that you've heard today. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord. That whole chapter is about pastors, as you can tell by the first verse when it says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Look at Psalm 45. Let me just give you a couple reminders about inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration is to breathe into something. God breathed into men the words that they wrote down for us to have. Psalm 45. This is David's description of how God inspired him to write my favorite psalm. My heart is indicting a good matter. The word indict in English is to dictate. My heart, inside me, there's a dictation process going on. Words are being dictated to me. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I am ready to communicate words. And sometimes they would speak them. A king would have men that would write down every word that he said, just like Paul had men that would write down what he said for some of his epistles. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Elihu said in Job 32 that he felt like a wine bottle. You say, was he inspired? Okay, flip over there and let's find out. Job 32, let's see if Elihu was inspired. David said, my heart is indicting a good matter. Here's what Elihu is going to say in Job 32 and verse 8. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And Elihu felt like a, a wine bottle needing to burst and say what the Lord had said to him. Oh, the extent of inspiration is the words themselves. We don't want idea inspiration. We don't want natural inspiration like George Han- What's his first name? Handel. George Frederick Handel? You know, they consider that he was inspired. Other people are inspired. You know, they would probably say that somebody was inspired to make the uh, Washington Monument, but I don't think there's a whole lot of inspiration there. But that's called natural inspiration. There's conceptual inspiration that God gave men a good idea and they just scribbled it down in their words, but that is not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that God gave the words that were written down. The extent of inspiration is the words themselves. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Quickly now, Jeremiah 30. 
Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. Now that's inspiration. I've given you the words, write them down and put them in a book. And there's many other places that we could go. Since you're in Jeremiah, flip over six chapters to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36. Verses 1 and 2, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. Everything I've said to you, write those words down in a book. Later, his stenographer was questioned about how the Bible came into existence and how the book of Jeremiah came into existence. Verse 17. This is kind of funny. Verse 17. They asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? How did you write down everything that Jeremiah preached? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Now that's not very complicated, is it? The Bible is not all that mysterious. It's just wonderful. He pronounced the words, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Next question. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. The method of inspiration, God gives them the words. The Holy Spirit moves them. As we just saw, David's heart was indicting to him. The result is consistent Scripture from one author. And that's why... When we compare Scripture with Scripture, it says comparing spiritual with spiritual in 1 Corinthians 2.13. If you go look at that verse, it is comparing the words of the Spirit of God to the words of the Spirit of God. We want to know how the Spirit of God uses a word. Dictionaries come secondary to the Bible itself being its own dictionary on how the Holy Spirit used words. And because of this wonderful fact about our Bible, we find all the one-word arguments in the Bible, of which I have 20. Maybe that'll be Wednesday night. Who knows what the Lord is going to lead us to, but let me close with one of them. And I've gone over this one so many times, but I want you to see it in print. Usually I refer to it. So turn to Matthew chapter 22, and let's see the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, He's the one that said, Heaven and earth shall pass, but My words shall not pass away. Jesus is the one. We're going to Matthew 22. Jesus said, Not a jot or a tittle shall in any wise fail from the law till all be fulfilled. Did Jesus believe that the minute details of Scripture could be argued from? Yes, indeed. Here's what we, here's what we close with. The Sadducees come to Him with this big sad story about a woman having seven husbands. And uh, who in the world is she going to be married to in heaven? They thought they had him dead to rights that they could prove that there wasn't a resurrection in heaven by making a fool of Jesus. But the opposite happened. He tells them there is no marriage in heaven. Next question. But then he doesn't let them off quite that easy. He said, he said in verse 31, but it's touching the resurrection of the dead. Since you guys, you seminary graduates from Sadducee school, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God 
Have you not read your own scriptures, you Jews? Saying, and this is verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine because those that had come to make a fool of him had just been made fools by him. Because they knew where this verse came from and they knew who it was spoken to and they knew the time delay between the two events. They knew that these words from God in verse 32 were spoken by God to Moses 300 years after the death of Abraham. And God is saying, I am the God of Abraham. So there was a spirit of Abraham that was still in the presence of God and God was still his God and God would resurrect him because God is the God of the living and not of the dead. In one verse, Jesus got all that done saying, your scriptures say to Moses 300 years after the death of Abraham that he had a spirit because he was still alive because God used the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is one of 20, brethren. This is because we believe our King James Bibles are perfect at the word level. And they can be argued from individual words. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that verse. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you understand that the argument is turning on the little two-letter word am because that is the present tense form of the verb to be. God is at that time, was at that time, and God is not right now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you understand that his argument is based on that little word, am? Not, I was the God of Abraham, because the Sadducees would have jumped up and said, see, Abraham doesn't exist anymore. Jesus said, see, Abraham does exist. Because God said, I am, 300 years later, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, let's go back to Exodus 3.6 and close this up. Oh, I get it. Oh, Lord, I love you so much. I'm sorry that the first time I was asked, what about the italicized words? I did not have a very good answer, but I've got a better answer now. Would somebody please come and ask me after the service, what about the italicized words? See, I had read Arthur Pink. Arthur Pink's book, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. He says when you read the Bible, don't read the italicized words because they weren't given by God. You can't translate one language into another language without interpolating words for it to make sense. And an interpolated word, our King James translators were honest enough to say, we interpolated a word, we put it in there because it was we were required to put that word in there for the sense of the verse. Look at Exodus 3.6. Moreover, God said to Moses, Exodus 3.6, Moreover, God said to Moses, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. We are at the burning bush, and God is telling Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where Jesus argued from on the basis of the word am. Look at the word am in Exodus 3.6. I've told you this before. It's just so good. It's just so good. The word am is in italics. Because it was interpolated from the Hebrew words for that Hebrew sentence to make sense. Do, Do we know that that word am should be there? Yes, because Jesus said that it belonged there in Matthew 22, 32. Is that a pretty good Bible? Is it more sure? 
Now for any young man that is suffering from anger, hatred, violence, he can go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. He ought to memorize them this week and believe that they are more sure than anything else he's going to ever hear about of getting along with people and being a good example of our Christian faith. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. For anybody that's fantasizing about polygamy, I direct you to Malachi chapter 2 where it says God had the residue of the Spirit and He could have lined up a dozen for Adam. But He only gave him one. This Bible right here, every part of our lives, this Bible tells us about saving money. It tells us about spending money. It tells us about avoiding risk, how to work on the job, how to love your husband, how to love your children, how to train your children, how to love your wife, how to go to work, what kind of an answer to give, how a soft answer turneth away. It just goes on and on. That's practical living. What about spiritual living? It tells us about death. It tells us about the first Adam. It tells us about the second Adam. And it tells us the second Adam is soon to reveal himself from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ when he shall come to be admired in his saints. Are you ready to admire him? Because overall, the main thrust, the primary chief aim of those three verses was get ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ because we have a more sure evidence that He is coming than Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. Some kiss their Bibles and don't understand them or obey them. You know, we could kiss it, but we're going to obey it more than that. Right. What I do in the privacy of my office is none of your business. <laughs> I love this book. Amen. And I'm, th I'm thankful for those words. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. It changed my life. And I hope it will change your lives. And let's remember that if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Amen. And if Amen. it were not so, I would have told you. Right. He didn't tell us. It is so. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.